Here at thesyncbook.com, we are a community exploring the impossible. Artists and seekers looking at the interconnected nature of all things. As of 2015, SyncBook Radio has over 25 gigs of high-quality audio without a single advertisement. And we keep on growing. We now have six radio programs producing regular content. Clearly, we have outgrown one model and are birthing another. We have spent the last five years attempting to build a space where researchers and seekers can take an honest approach to this material, where people can look at these weird things without being laughed at or yelled at, to build a community that encourages each other to continue to learn and to explore. This quest began in earnest with the publication of the first sync book back in 2011. Since then it has ballooned into a major undertaking, and thesyncbook.com has become a repository for cutting-edge media and all things sync. Along the way we have found amazing allies to become an unparalleled creative team. We have met the most supportive and loving fans. And, of course, we've bumped heads with a few assholes. With all of your help, we've been able to grow and provide a platform to more artists. Now, we are asking you to take the next step with us. After investing a ton of time, energy, money, and hard fucking work, thesyncbook.com has just finished its major overhaul, and we are ready for you to make yourselves cozy here. We've installed new players for our podcasts, with streaming from fast and reliable hosting. We added expanded search functions that tap into classic sync video libraries. And our new member section gives access to our full archive of over 600 hours of podcasts, as well as members-only media, HD videos, and transcripts. There's also discounted physical copies of SyncBook Press titles, as well as Google Hangouts with the radio hosts every month. You'll also have an opportunity to tap into additional exclusive media inside Dropbox 42. For those of you unable to purchase memberships, rest assured that the three most recent episodes of all podcasts will remain free for everyone, every week so regular listeners will be able to continue enjoying these shows uninterrupted. While financial realities dictate that we can't keep up this level of output and continue to give away everything for free, we've made every possible effort to make this something all of you would really want to be a part of. Please visit thesyncbook.com membership now. The criers of the mysteries speak again. Bidding all men, welcome to the house of light. The great institution of materiality has failed. The false civilization built by man has turned and like the monster of Frankenstein, is destroying its creator. Religion wanders aimlessly in the maze of theological speculation. Science batters itself impotently against the barriers of the unknown. Only transcendental philosophy knows the path. Only the illumined reason can carry the understanding part of man upward to the light. Only philosophy can teach man to be born well, to live well, to die well, and in perfect measure be born again. Into this band of the elect, 
those who have chosen the life of knowledge, of virtue, and of utility, the philosophers of the ages invite you. Hello and good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today completes our series on Manly P. Hall's Secret Teachings of All Ages. It's been fun. And I think the thing that I take away, too, is that if you read this book in your 20s, you'll think you know the secrets of the universe. But if you read this book in your 40s, it will remind you that you don't know anything at all. More work to do for sure, and so 42 Minutes continues finding meaning in what some people think is a bad left shark world. We all know the truth, though. It's magic. And thus, to close out this series, if Mr. P. Hall was the master of the mysteries, today we are connecting with the master of the master of the mysteries, that is, the author of the Manly P. Hall biography. Today we share 42 minutes with Louis Sahagan, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. He has written about issues ranging from religion, culture and the environment, to crime, politics and water. He was on the team of LA Times writers that earned the Pulitzer Prize in public service for a series on Latinos in Southern California, and he's also a board member of the Latino Journalists of California and the author of the book, Master of the Mysteries, The Life of Manly Palmer Hall. More information about his work can be found at latimes.com. It really is an honor to have him here today. Welcome, Lewis. How are you today? I'm fine, and thank you for having me. You bet. So... How did you come to write this book? How long did it take you, and what kind of access did you have? I came to write this book. Uh, actually, the beginning uh, is uh, the arc of the of the uh, my adventure in into Manley Hall's life and times began on the night of September second, nineteen ninety. I was working the night shift at the Los Angeles Times. It was a skeleton crew. It was just myself and an editor on a lonely uh, night with not much going on. Uh, and uh, I got a phone call. And the caller said, uh, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century has died. You better get an obit ready. Now, I, you know, I've always been somewhat interested in philosophy. And I also, as a reporter, read was reading the wire services that were pouring out the stories of the day and the night as I sat there. I didn't see anything about the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. So I said, yeah, who's that? Skeptically, not unnaturally. And he said, Manly Palmer Hall. And I said, who's that? And he said, (laughs) (laughs) so he said, well, you know, and he said a few things. I said, well, listen, give me your name and number. I'll get back to you. So uh, I went to the editor and I said, hey, look, uh, I hear this guy, Manly Palmer Hall, died he, uh, I better check and see what we got in the clips. Now, in those days, our archives were in a in a library with, uh, with literally with newspaper clippings in envelopes, and they were they were um, classified and archived by according to name, you know, flood, fire, 1922, whatever. So anyway, I go into the archives of the L.A. Times and I look up Manley Palmer Hall and I see, oh my lord, we have drawers full of articles that we had written about him from the 1920s through the 19, pretty much the late 1960s, maybe a f- one or two in the 70s. Remember, this was 1990. 
But I saw, I could see without even looking at the clips, whoa, this guy was a big deal once. I went back to the editor and I said, hey, it turns out this guy, Manley Hall, was a pretty big deal. We wrote, we gave him a lot of ink in the 30s and 40s. He said, okay, give me, we got room for 10 column inches. That means roughly 10 paragraphs. So I called the fellow back and uh, to make a long story short, I wrote a story of about 10 paragraphs about the death of Manley Palmer Hall that he had died. It was his obituary for in the LA Times. I didn't know then, and I learned subsequently that Hall was uh, the subject of uh, the focus of a of an active homicide investigation by the Los Angeles Police Department. But I also had gotten a taste of who he was and what he was up to in the 20s and 30s by reading the archives. I was fascinated because in many of these articles, it showed that he was friends with, advised, and or was standing alongside some of the most important people of that time. So who is this guy? And it was clear that he was some kind of, uh, you know, that he was a, uh, a mystic, um, a esotericist, a word not familiar to me at the time. So years pass, a few years pass, but... Uh, you know, uh, roughly, uh, my goodness, roughly a decade passes, but he's always on my mind. And I had been poking around and I had made a few calls. I decided to go ahead and write his life and times. I decided to write a biography about this man because the more I learned about him, the more I learned how influential he was at the time. Also, and now with that, perhaps, well, if I can give you a quick kind of uh, arc of his life and you can see uh, does that make sense to you yeah, i can give you yeah. a sense of who he was where he came from so in making a few calls about hall around 19 in the late 1990s uh the few people still around who knew him back in the 50s and 40s and there were just like less than a handful um and they're all gone now but they had talked about him to me in in reverent tones even in hushed tones and some of them were even suggesting that the guy was half male and half female, like the gods he wrote about huh. in some of his essays. And these were people who knew him really, really well. Um, I also heard of, uh, you know, that he had a vault and that the vault included uh, gold Krugerans and diamonds and in addition to rare esoteric books, uh, alchemical works that uh, you know you know were unique and and hundreds of years old so uh you know i don't you know um also uh, people would talk about his uh, his magical powers and that he was part of a lineage of, of philosophers and teachers that come that nature produces to help guide mankind every couple hundred years, nature gives birth to a person like this, Sophocles, Pluto, Plato, you know, Pythagoras, Hall, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a reporter. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, okay, you know, I'm not buying any of that. Of course not. But I am fascinated. Who is this guy? Right. And what do you mean he was murdered? Well, as a reporter, I have, you know, I can go to the police department. Most people can't. Um, I, as a reporter, I know, I, you know, I applied my skills and was able to get a hold of, you know, a trove 
a trove of um, court documents and uh, court uh, interviews uh, with people having to do with his alleged murder that no one else would have entree to. They wouldn't even know where to begin to look for some of the stuff I got. And so I thought, oh my, this this is really interesting. So here's, in a, in a nutshell, here's Manly Hall. And it's not at all what people thought. The truth, in my mind, is far more interesting. Okay, so the truth about Manly Hall is that he was uh, born in uh, in Canada. Uh, his he never knew his dad. His dad was a pretty pretty well off dentist in Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, he was making about twenty six hundred dollars a year, which was pretty good money in those days. Uh, he he left Manly and his mother. He he abandoned them right after Manly Hall was born. Mom, his mom, uh, was just overwhelmed after a bad marriage and being left abandoned by the husband after she's given birth to this kid. Oh, by the way, the story goes, Manly used to say that there were magical happenings that occurred around his birth, at the time of his birth, at the moment of his birth. And he, he talks about... Um, uh, you know that actually he was he was the first cesarean birth at uh, uh, Nichols General Hospital in Peterborough, and that the, he was a uh, he was dead he was declared dead, and then as though some power from the great beyond had swooped down and taken over his body, he let out a yowl as a baby, and that the doctor who was smoking a cigar and a, wearing a top hat at the time lifts him up by his feet, holds him up to the light and says, well, if he lives, he's going to be a big fella. But in truth, mom went in. She did have some, um, uh, a few problems, but nothing serious. She gave birth. The medical records show it was a normal birth, $20 bill that she paid to to give birth to him. Then, uh, so she takes the baby home and she gives him to her mother and says, I, you take him, I'm leaving. And she went to Alaska to, to be a chiropractor to minors during the gold rush in Alaska. Um, grandmother, and she is peripatetic. So she, uh, she and Manley Hall embark on, um, crisscrossing the United States several times and living in myriad towns as manly as a little boy. And uh, finally, uh, so she dies by the time uh, he was 16 when she died. Manly never finished sixth grade, by the way. No, I think he finished sixth grade, but that was it. That's the extent of his schooling. And he never corrected people, when, by the way, when they call him Dr. Hall. Um, <laughs> just, so, so he is in New York when mom dies, uh, when grandma dies, uh, and now he's alone there. And How old he, is he then? He was 16. Okay. And so he gets a job in a, uh, in a, in an accounting firm and he's going to apprentice to be, uh, an accountant on the weekends, this big, he's six foot four, uh, just, you know, he had a troubled childhood. Uh, he doesn't know his mom. He never knew his dad. Grandma's dead. And he, uh, so he would go for walks on the weekend in New York. And uh, he, one place that he discovered and he became 
attached to right away was a uh, magic shop for for that sold props for magicians for stage magicians and in the back of the store magicians would go and and try out tricks on each other you know they would actually uh you know try out their latest uh, sleight of hand tricks so manly used to go there hang out there on saturday and one of the people who used to hang out in the back was uh, harry houdini so Houdini and Hall strike up something of a friendship, but Houdini was extreme was skeptical of like uh, you know the Indian rope tricks and uh, stories of you know Indian uh, magicians uh, you know raising uh, growing mangoes in a matter of mango trees to full mature growth in a matter of minutes by playing a flute things like that. Hall believed all that. And he and Houdini would have long arguments in the back over whether or not that was possible. Houdini said, absolutely not, please. And and Manley would say, well, I think, you know, you don't know everything and some of these things are possible. So, so uh, that was, that, you know, was an important uh, juncture in Manley's life in terms of crystallizing certain ideas and taking a position. His mother, meantime, was in California, in uh, Santa Monica. She had settled and returned from Alaska. She was living in Santa Monica. And like many people at the time, many people in Southern California at the time, they were exploring uh, some of, uh, you know, uh, uh, non-mainstream, you know, religious pursuits and mystical pursuits. Rosicrucianism, for example. Uh, Max Heindel's... uh, 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 Rosicrucian Center. He had a permutation of Rosicrucian beliefs uh, down in uh, down in San Diego County. But there were a lot of them setting up shop with uh, very interesting, you know, in buildings with fascinating architecture. Separate from all of that, Masons at that time, Freemasonry was enormous. It was, you know, all the movers and shakers were Freemasons. So they, the judges, architects, scientists, movie makers, Cecil B. DeMille, um, uh, the, uh, one of the heads of Caltech, um, all, they were all Masons. And they were, in a way, you know, you could say that L.A. was, in a way, it was founded, modern L.A., by, by uh, mystics. So this is this boiling pot of um, diverse beliefs and uh, diverse ethnic backgrounds is, is that's uh, you know boiling over in this land that many thought was a land of you know great promise. The movie industry was just starting to take off. Um, water in 1913 was an aqueduct was built to to uh, ferry water from the eastern Sierra, so LA would not have to worry about water. There were orange groves everywhere. It did feel like uh, the beginning of some new, you know, new way of thinking, a new way of living. And even some people thought they could be part of that way, showing the rest of the world the way to the way to a new shiny um, uh, future. So Manly is in this. So Manly Manly goes home to mom because he's got nowhere else to go. He's got no friends. He's got no schooling. He uh, steps off the train in 1919. He's 18 years old. He rejoins mom. He's got no friends. He's mixed up. He's troubled. He, again, as was his way, he goes for walks. One of those walks uh, led him to the Santa Monica Pier, 
the Santa Monica Pier at that time was a, you know, uh, there were rows of like shooting galleries and, um, you know, games and, um, you know, little, you know, restaurants and, and beer joints. And there was one little shop with a sign that said phrenology. So Manley uh, walks up to that little shop, presses his face against the window, and he sees a map of the of the of the human skull, and it's divided, and it's got you know names on on these little partitions, and he realizes this is a guy who reads you know bumps and and to determine uh, character and tell you all about yourself and your past and present and future. Presiding over that little shop was a diminutive Civil War veteran and buggy uh, and horse doctor who invites Manley in. And those two guys, try to imagine, six foot four, the, uh, the Dr. Brownson was, uh, I think, five, under five, I think it was five feet tall. Hmm. And they become best friends. And this doctor with a starts regaling Manly Hall with ideas. He introduces Hall to Blavatsky, to you know ideas of you know vibratory um, physiologies, you know that can be read by way of the auras they produce in you know human beings and things like that. Hall is enthralled. He's also got a friend. He's like a human sponge. His mother often went to the Rosicrucian Center down in San Diego that was run by Max Heindel. Max Heindel was a guy, he had a notion of evolution based on, similar to Blavatsky's notion of seven, uh, well, we won't go into it, but essentially that nature is spawning successive uh, waves of increasingly advanced people as it goes along. It, it's impo- no one understands it, I believe. Maybe the only person who really understands that idea uh, was, uh, you know, Max Heidel himself. But Hall, so Hall now, he's got a friend who's involved in these things, and he's got a mother who is fascinated by them and even attends one of them. Hall, to impress his mother and, and, uh, Oh, and by the way, the, the little guy, the, the, uh, Dr. Brownson invited him. He, he was so marveled at the kid's enthusiasm and hard work in learning these things that he invited him to give us a lecture over a bank down the street. Give, you want to talk about this kid? I know this place. There's some ladies who go there. You could tell, you know, you got what it takes. Hall goes and uh, he gives a lecture and he makes 65 cents in donations. So Hall and, and Brownson then go and buy uh, chocolate sundaes at a little drugstore down the street with, their, with his earnings. And Hall found his, his calling. Uh. He also uh, has a way of impressing mom. So now he's really, really um, giving it everything he has, um, just throwing himself into into these books and into these notions. Hall then, uh, fast forward a little bit, by the time Hall was 22 years old, he was attending a church in L.A. that was called Church of the People, and it was a church that was like many churches 
at the time. It wasn't all that unusual. But at this church, they taught New Testament, but also they gave time to to Pythagoras, or they gave time to uh, you know Buddhism, uh, and they'd even have classical music, class, live classical music. It was part of the part of the uh, the, uh, the the you know part of the uh, sermons. Hall is is a fixture there in this Church of the People. When the head of that church left, Hall took over uh, because he was such an ardent follower. He was, try to imagine. In his 20s? He was 21 years old, and he takes over this church of 600 faithful huh. who, who are experimenting in philosophy and schools of mysticism, they, like a lot of people at the time. So now Hall is suddenly a preacher at Church of the People, and people are going to their preacher and saying, you know, Mr. Hall, you know, we understand that, uh, what do you know about the Rosicrucians up in San Jose? H. Spencer Lewis has some, is saying some interesting things. Well, Hall would, uh, as became his habit, he, he would launch into, uh, he would immerse himself into studies of these different issues and also try to answer people's questions about their personal problems by referring to the thing that suddenly he schooled in. He didn't learn about any other kind of philosophy. He didn't finish school, but he was steeped in these mystical notions that were originally imparted by Dr. Brownson and that he got from his mother's uh, uh, dabbling at the down in San Diego at the Rosicrucian Center started by Max Heindel. So Hall, to answer their questions about marriage, marital problems, you know, you know, uh, I, where, how do I get energy to keep my job? I'm losing interest, whatever. Hall would refer to those tomes, and he invariably found answers in Lotso, in you know, in uh, you know, even so, in these uh, ancient mystical schools. Because he went to those sources because he didn't know himself. He was a kid and he knew it. But he could refer to these things and invariably find something to share. Often he did not attribute where he got the information. He would just have a seat. Let's talk. What's your problem? Well, Mr. Hall, um, I'm embarrassed to tell you, blah, 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 blah. Okay. All right. Well, let me say this. And he would he would you know reiterate something he'd read in from some arcane mystical school that seemed to apply but he wouldn't say i heard this from i read a book by so and so people came to think wow how does he know where is he getting this um hall uh, eventually by this time he was an established lecturer on these notions one of many in L.A. at the time, not unusual, except Hall's delivery was unusual. He sat on a throne-like chair, even back then. He sat on a throne-like chair and spoke from a stage. And when he was giving 90-minute lessons, they ended 90 minutes to the second. They lasted 90 minutes. And they usually would follow an arc, uh, beginning with an old school notion, some mystical school, and he would end with a 
current event or vice versa, begin with the current event and then bring it back, circle back to some old school or mystical, you know, notion uh, by way of saying the answers to the problems of modern life can be found in these ancient schools. Um, at the end of the 90 minute talk, which was, he recited without notes. He didn't even take a sip of water. He, it was as though he was reading from a scroll over the heads of the audience. In fact, he was reading, but it was, he was reading back from his photographic memory. He had a photographic memory. So he looked like he was reading in the air. He was, he was, he was remembering what he read and embellishing as he went along. And at the end of the 90 minutes, he'd say, well, folks, that's about it for today. And he would, he would walk off. So he, he starts by the, um, he publishes the big book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which you're looking into. Uh, it was a $150,000 production. It was met several years in the making, and it was pretty much based on his uh, his the his the library he had collected. He had I'm sorry that he grew at uh, his personal library, which consisted often of gifts. People would have Jacob Burme, you know collections, quartets or something, and they were old. And they said, you know, Mr. Hall, would you like this? Or or leave it to him in their wills. So his library was growing like uh, exponentially. So the big book, before he published the big book, he published a newsletter called The All-Seeing Eye. And The All-Seeing Eye was based on the li- his personal library. And also research he did at the L.A. City Library. And uh, again, taking current events and wrapping them into or interweaving them in um, these old, uh, these ancient uh, schools of religion and mystical thought and trying to prove again and again, reiterating this notion that the, that way back when these ancient peoples had uh, understandings uh, of getting that would enable people to get through problems that are common to all people at all times, back then and even in modern times. So he starts getting quite a following and he starts, he turns many of the themes that were in the all seeing eye. He turns them into this magnificent book and it is magnificent. It's a, it's a stunning book, uh, even today by today's standards. Interestingly, he, one of the key people who, one of the key, one of his key assistants in putting that magnificent book together was his first wife. And prior to marrying her, she was his, secret- his secretary for five years. And that was Faye B. Derevin. Faye was his secretary for five years prior to publication of the big book. She did not get credit. He didn't give her credit. <laughs> she was incredibly beautiful. This woman was a sultry uh, brunette. She was an astrologer. She was from Texas. She wanted, she saw herself as a writer and of course being Manly Palmer Hall's secretary seemed at least for a while like the height, you know, of her, of of her career. A gift, you know, a gift from God to be, to have such a job. So then that book was produced 
maybe with a team with a lot more? Oh yes, with an enormous team. It was edited by the 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 editor of the book was a paraplegic who actually had to read galley proofs that were over that as he's laying on his back paraplegic. Uh, he's reading <laughs> the galley proofs over his head. His wife was his secretary, so she was his, you know, uh, working nonstop on this thing. That, that was quite. That was quite a team. And it is. It is a remarkable achievement. So anyway, after the publication of the book, now he's got the guy, the eye, and the attention of people of influence, uh, a political. Uh, in education, in politics, in industry, and in the burgeoning movie industry, by the way. Also, people started thinking, if, if you went to watch him give a lecture, if you read The Secret Teachings of All Ages, in this land of promise and potential that was Southern California, people started thinking, people who were powerful and people who wanted to be powerful or successful, if I get to know that guy, it could help. <laughs> this guy, I know this could help me get a lead in a certain movie or be a better actor or, you know, become a manager of the factory I'm working at or whatever. Hall had also this interesting uh, effect on people in the audience of his lectures. People came to think, uh, man, this guy's talking to me. This is about me, isn't it? Like he'd throw in a graph or, to, you know, he'd spend a minute on, on fear of earthquakes, just say. And people came to think, that's about me. It's about my fear. He's trying to help me. So he get, he's developed this incredible following now. Um, he developed the first major motion picture in history that it was a... Um, a murder mystery. It's called uh, When Were You Born? And starring Anna Mae Wong, who was an established actress already at the time. And Manley Hall uh, wrote the uh, screenplay, and it was a movie about based on uh, how astrology cracks a murder mystery. It's a it's a terrible, terrible movie, but it is it is available, <laughs> and it's introduced. Manley introduces the movie, so if you rent this movie or you get it somehow uh, through Netflix or whatever you're, however you can uh, get it, it's out there. You can actually see Manley Hall in his prime at a desk introducing uh, the, the characteristics of the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And you get to see Manley, what, what he looked like, what he sounded like pretty much in his prime. Hollywood uh, thought, okay, the movie bombed, but you know what this guy has? He can, he's got talent oh, that maybe we can milk. So he, they've got him writing. He wrote a, uh, he wrote a, uh, he wrote a, uh, a Dracula movie, which was never made. He wrote uh, several other scripts for uh, uh, Bella Lugosi, who was one of his best friends at the time. Um, so, oh, so then his wife, who, his wife had a brain tumor, and his wife, uh, Faye, beautiful Faye, uh, was hearing voices and seeing, she was hallucinating that there were these uh, individuals that were coming from the great beyond, wanting her to write their religion down. 
so that she could save the world. Uh, and then, but they wouldn't leave her alone and she never could sleep. Hall was on the road a lot at this time, by the late 1930s. He's on the road on the lecture circuit, back and forth across the country. She's by herself. Uh, the hallucinations get more and more intense and scarier and scarier. She falls to pieces. And finally, uh, after two weeks of one of the worst rains, uh, uh, persistent rains in L.A. history, I think it was 1942. It's in the book in great detail. Uh, Faye gets in the family car while Manley's out of town. She drives around behind a theater in an alley and sticks a hose in the in the exhaust and the other end in the uh, car and rolls up the windows, turns the, and starts the ignition and commits suicide. A lot of people in Hull's life, by the way, committed suicide um, over the course of his life. Um, so compounding phase problems was the attention of a, of a woman, of a German immigrant, Marie Bauer, who decided, you know, fell in love with Hall and decided that, you know, she should be with him. She is the one and together they could save the world. There were a lot of people like that in Hall's life. By the way, I forgot to mention Hall was subsidized beginning in the early 1920s by one of the wealthiest oil families in California, the Lloyd family. And Carolyn Lloyd and her daughter, Estelle, who was a friend of Hemingway's first wife, those two women went to Hall when he was still back in the Church of the People in his early 20s and said, young man, you will never have to worry about money as long as you live. And he didn't. So their oil, they had, were funneling some of their oil dividends to him. They were writing checks to him. And he was one way or another getting money from Carolyn and then later uh, exclusively from Estelle all the way to uh, the 1980s is when that money ran out. Estelle, who was lesbian, <laughs> actually proposed to Hall after Faye committed suicide. Um, uh, believing, guess what, that she and Hall could save the world from itself. But Hall, uh, so Hall finally gives in to little Marie, Marie Bauer. They're married, and Marie gets the idea that um, <laughs> by looking through Manley's books and listening to him talk and a meeting with a guy who walked into Manley's office one day to meet with him, the guy says, hey, you want to hear something interesting? And Marie goes, yes, of course. You know, sure, what? He goes, he says, well, you know, uh, um, he says the um, uh, uh, Francis Bacon hid some uh, unpublished uh, Shakespearean works that he wrote because Shakespeare didn't write it. He wrote them and they're hidden in uh, Williamsburg, I think, Virginia. And they're in near a church grounds there, and they're there. Marie, and in addition to, there's also secrets to peace on, to peace on earth, or in some copper cylinders that Francis Bacon and some of his people buried there secretly. They came across the Atlantic in the early 1600s and buried that stuff, and then went on. Marie says, "Gee whiz, why are we talking about? It? Let's just go dig it up." <laughs> So Marie finds her calling. Now Marie's whole rest of her life 
the entire rest of her life was dedicated to discovering the so-called Bruton Vault. That was her career. That was her career, and she want, needed Manly because Manly could open doors to influential people and possible money that she needed to go and dig up the Bruton Vault, hidden by uh, by Bacon. Are you are you still with me? I'm I mean, still it, with you, but so <laughs> his life is so fascinating. Yes, it's fascinating, but it's wacky, but it's also. He was an important player. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he he had influence. But so Marie is drop dead gorgeous. So she's kind of as her daughter said to me, not she had two kids, uh, not by Hall, but she leaves her husband George, who was an electrician and, a, and an architect. She leaves him for Hall because she decides. Uh, saving the world with Manning Hall is more important than living with you as much as you care about me and, and our kids. The kids and you are in the way, George. I'm, i i got to save the world. Here's a question. So Manly P. Hall is inspiring all these people to a spiritual calling. Did he himself think that he was somehow also that kind of messianic figure that the people around him thought he was? No, no, he did. He knew better, but he also was developing a following. He needed their their help. He needed their money. He needed their. He also remember he it was a it was a uh, it was a calling for him. He found a a career. Um, let me tell you, uh, he, on occasion, Hall would write or say what was really in his heart and mind about it by way of response to that very question. He knew that people would be nagged by, is he for real or what is this? What is going on here? But Hall, in my mind, he, uh, he wrote two passages, uh, two separate paragraphs, uh, one in 1942 and one around the same time, but in a different book. And they are exquisite. It's some of the best writing he ever did. These are two paragraphs. They're my favorite paragraphs by him. And they're, they're, they are his attempt to answer your question. Did anyone listen? Would, n no. But here's what he said. Do you mind if I read these graphs? You, they're striking. Sure. Yes, please. So the precede paragraph in my book to these graphs is, it goes this way. By the 1980s, Hall knew all too well that his inconsistencies and personal failings were catching up with him and disappointing some acolytes. He had predicted that would happen in essays written decades earlier on the dangers of putting spiritual leaders on a pedestal. Quote, one cause of disillusionment in metaphysics is for the metaphysical teacher to prove to be more human than originally suspected, he wrote in an essay published in 1942. Quote, the tendency is to so elevate personalities that we endow them with sacred powers. All our faith is put upon them as we hang tinsel on a Christmas tree. The leader is assumed to be infallible, whereas he is no more than one who is well-meaning, quite capable of contributing to the improvement of humanity, 
but still personally subject to innumerable ills. Doing the best he can, he is a good human being, but a poor divinity. All followers who offer to adorn and deify their teachers set up a false condition. Human beings, experience has proved, make better humans than they do gods. We should be willing to accept a person who possesses wisdom as a friend, not deify him. It just won't hold up, end quote. And then a year later, he wrote this, quote, Why did the disciples of Pythagoras always refer to the master as the man? As in the Bible, we are enjoined to behold the man. Why? Because in the old mysteries, only the initiated were human. The rest were trying to get that way. And any greatness was measured by their accomplishment. Only the great initiated adepts were recognized as human. The rest were creatures crawling toward the light, who having eyes not see not, and are therefore blind, who having ears do not hear. It is in this manner that the Platonist tells us what they were trying to do at our stage of human development, not to make gods out of men, but to make men out of beasts, and so lift humanity up to its true estate of enlightened harmlessness, where men no longer prey upon each other, end quote. And then I say, he could have been talking about himself. So he, he knew what was going on, but he also, uh, unfortunately, he dangled the carrot up. You never know, you never know. I interviewed people who, uh, one guy rem- uh, said, you know, I remember telling Manley Hall after a, after a pretty big earthquake in Southern California, you know, about I was uh, planning to move out. And, uh, and I asked, do you think we're going to have another earthquake, Mr. Hall? And he said, Manley slammed his fist down on the desk and said, not while I'm here. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Lewis Shahagan on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Shahagan can be found at latimes.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. Thanks so much, and remember the philosophers of the ages invite you. Although I know you're going to find it devastating if I interrupt Katy Perry, I want to break in here and explain something to you. Every week when we perform the 42 Minutes interview, there's usually a little bit of bleed over, especially if Will or I have any burning questions. 
And as you may well know, we now have a members section, and what's going to happen is anytime it's possible, we're going to post that bleed over 10 to 30 minutes into the members section every week. What you'll hear following this little interruption is just the end of the conversation that I had with Louis Sahagan. I blew his name at the end. Very sorry, Louis. You're hearing him answer my final questions and just kind of wrapping it up. And so I present this to you this week as, an, as, a, as a bonus of what members can expect in the near future. Thank you so much for supporting us and, and uh, we look forward to a continued relationship. Bye-bye. Thank you. Um, Did that work at all? I that hope. worked great. I'm just as a, an afterthought, a curiosity: is the murder, the murder case closed? Did they determine whether? No, the the case is not closed. Although the lead, the chief suspect is dead, and his son, who was believed to be an assistant in the thing, is also dead. Um, Manley and that guy, the guy who police believe killed him, had been at the end of Manley's life experimenting with alternative medicines, um, but also with Pythag- uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Paracelsian uh, <laughs> treatments. Uh, they would go out and they would pee on the east-facing side of a tree in Manley Hall's backyard, provide making sure that there were ants on the tree as they peed on it together so that the ants would take away the negative uh, aspects in, of their uh, souls. Um, uh, they were, um, you get the picture. I mean, this, uh, oh, by the way, I'm going <laughs> to, this is the kind of thing I was worried about saying. Manley Hall's wife, toward the end, uh, Manley, this guy who was treating Manley, was also collecting sperm from him, believing he wanted to keep some sperm from the great man, from the great master, you know, that to continue this race, you know, a race of super people. So he would go in there while giving Manly enemas, which were big to Paracelsus, by the way. Uh, He'd be given Manly an enema, and they did it twice a day, and he'd be jacking Manly off. And Marie, his wife, walked in and found this, um, or she could see it through a crack in the door. She went to Manly's doctor. I interviewed his family physician. He said, yeah, Marie dragged him in here a couple of times, said, Bunley's homosexual, um, and it's driving me crazy. Look what he's doing with Dan Fritz, you know, in the bathroom. Um, Manley, you know, you know, had was very troubled in terms of sexual identity. That is pretty strange stuff. But uh, let me tell you that one of his followers of 40, 50 years told me he said, you know, Lewis, he said, you know, Lewis, I, uh, I just want you to know your manly was half, half man, half woman. I said, you know, for, you know, I've heard that from other people. Where'd you get that, man? Where'd you hear that? And he said, well, I was over his house and manly was in a bathrobe and the bathrobe flew open. I couldn't help but take a look. You know what I mean? I said, Fred, I do know what you mean, but I want to tell you something. Please listen carefully. He said, yeah, what? And I said, Fred, I have his autopsy photos. Manly had one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So, Douglas, yeah. what do you make of all this? I'm telling you, be careful with this stuff. A little bit goes a long way. People <laughs> lose their minds. Well, that, it doesn't help them. <laughs> I know that you found him compelling. What did you think of his actual writing? On occasion, he was very good. On occasion, he wrote, you know, he would write about, uh, for example, here's the bottom line on this writing. He was a he was a natural writer, although self-taught. So if you look at it, you can find some things. Ooh, you know, this is funny English, or this is wrong. But he also wrote, um, you know, he was playing his audience, which was diverse. So he would write in one book about some mystic being able, as he did write, you know, being able, how do you say it, you know, burn a hole, burn, burn a hole through a foot thick uh, slab of ebony from the other side of the world with, you know, by thought alone. So he would write that for one guy or that Egyptian priest could live underwater. But then on it to another, he would write other books that were actually not bad, half bad, uh, giving, you know, explaining, you know, uh, fundamentals of, of the, you know, main philosophical schools. They're not bad. They're good introductions. He played his audience. Hall personally, one of the chief principles that he dispensed, that he preached all his life was self-discipline, self-discipline, much as you now hear from, say, Zen Buddhists, hmm. disciplining the mind, disciplining the body. But he, he couldn't keep his hands off chocolate cake. <laughs> and he, he became, in, you know, terrifyingly obese, really scary. And it, in fact, it got so bad, before he died, he actually went to the, his doctor and asked his doctor if he could please cut his stomach off, the whole goddamn thing. Wow. What did <laughs> the his... doctor said, Manly, you can't do that. Well, you need to stop eating all that shit, yeah. and you need to lay off the enemas, man. It's going to throw your electrolytes out of balance. You're going to die. I mean, that's, that was his real life. He, ate, he would order entire cheesecakes with friends at the at the uh, at the uh, at the uh, local Hollywood restaurants, the Brown Derby, and everybody, and he would slice <laughs> he'd slice the pie into pieces, one for everybody at the table, and then he would eat the whole thing, two of them. What did what did his estate or surviving family think of your book? Did you get any? Manly, Manly Hall's uh, stepchildren, the two children, Marie's children, were two of my most important sources. They could not believe that people would go over their house. You know, they were born in the 40s. And so, you know, they were kids through the height of Manly and Marie's influence and everything. They, they couldn't believe that people would come in and bow on the kitchen floor and the way that they would treat them. And then when those people would leave and the door would shut, it was back to Marie's sheer insanity and reducing and berating Hall and slapping him in the face. This little tiny lady whacking him in the face, Hall crying in the house. I mean, that was the truth of the life. So Manly's stepkids were saying, oh man, you gotta, you gotta tell the world. We couldn't believe it. And all this is in the book? Uh Uh-huh. Wow.
Okay, well, we're definitely going to have to read it, and and we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about some of the more interesting points. I hope points. you don't think – I know it sounds horrible, but remember, I'm a reporter. I just say it. It just is what it is without saying good or bad. It just – I want to say one more thing. Okay. Manley went to – you know, he did warn, be careful with, you know, alternative medicine, I mean, doctors with magical powers, but he went to them. And his key, the main guy was Phil Gray. Phil Gray was one of his chief healers, and Hall would often invite a bunch of people over, and uh, even movie stars. It's in the book. But he would go over and he would sh- send in vibrations through his right arm that would, that would heal them of whatever their issues were. But you know what the women's issues were always for Phil Gray? No. Uh huh. The clit didn't work, so he would <laughs> put his hand down their dress and start messing with them. Now, and I'm telling you the truth. What's lovely about this, and it's also in the book, is one of Marie's sisters, who was a medical doctor, was over at their house once when Phil Gray was over there administering his <laughs> his healing vibrations. So Hall, uh, Hall, I mean, he, Phil Gray, <laughs> he has Marie's sister there, and he's she saw what's going, what was going on with the others. He starts to put his hand down her dress, and she says, Stop! Not on your life, mister! (laughs) Look, man, they were acting like five-year-olds, but he was also taking money for it and and acquiring influence because of it. They were living like children in a pretend school. Be careful. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, and uh, this is great. I think my listeners are going to really appreciate it. So I've got to run. Um, Take it easy. Thank you. I hope you had fun. The book is a blast, I think. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great, and this was a great end to the series. So thank you so much. Take it easy, man. You Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.